0: Welcome to Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Farm, ETSU's Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. Uh, it is uh, April 13th, 2023, and as I previewed last week, we're going to do one of the landmark of uh, um episodes where we go back and look at, uh, you know, a major defining study that paved the way for what we do today in oncology pharmacy. And so we're gonna go back and talk about NSABP, the National Surgical Adjuvant Breast and Bowel Project. NSABP B18, this is preoperative chemo in breast cancer. If you do not subscribe to the Journal of Clinical Oncology, um, I don't blame you, it can be expensive, but if your institution has access to it, um, or not, I would suggest sign up for the email table of contents and you'll get an email whenever there is a new edition uh, or if you, you can also sign up for um, early release when that comes out. So ASCO has been doing this thing, uh, I think starting in 2023 for every, for every issue, they have this flashback, flash forward where somebody, in this case, uh, Clifford Huddis, who's a, an editor at, at uh, JCO and is at MSK uh, in New York, North Sloan kettering Cancer Center, uh, provides like a one or two page synopsis of why this study that they're highlighting was important. Um, and oftentimes you can you can get these for free, um, some of these landmark studies. So that's what I'm going to talk about today: is this B18, um, which was published in 1998. Um, this um, is wonderfully written. We used to do things in this country. This is a cooperative group study. That's what NSABP. And uh, I'm going to read from this. Is at the time, the point of this was to look at what is the goal of preoperative, aka neoadjuvant, primary, or induction. They didn't even know what we we're going to call this at this point. They hadn't, we as a society, as an oncology committee, had not decided, uh, finalized the term neoadjuvant. So the primary aim was to determine if preoperative chemo. Could be more effective at prolonging disease-free survival and overall survival the second objective was to evaluate the response of primary tumor to preoperative chemo to correlate that i.e complete pathologic complete response with disease-free survival overall survival the third aim was to determine whether preoperative chemo resulted in more breast preserving surgery and decrease the incidence of ipsilateral or on the other side breast cancer recurrence after surgery so could women get away with a lumpectomy as opposed to a mastectomy, a more invasive surgery with preoperative chemo. And then the additional objective was to uh, figure out whether therapy decreased the percentage of patients that were node negative, uh, basically had downstage nodal status. Okay. Now, so that was the point of this study. Now, this is published in 1998, but the study began in 1988. And as I like to do, I like to go back to when the study was was started. So in 1988, the number one grossing film in America for 1988 was Who Framed Roger Rabbit? As a kid, I can remember seeing the commercials for this. I don't think I ever saw the movie. Number two was Coming to America. Number three, Good Morning Vietnam, wore out the soundtrack on the cassette tape in my mom's car because that's all we had were cassette tapes. Uh, number 13 was Willow, a favorite of one of my good friends, so saw that a lot on VHS, renting that from the Blockbuster. Kids, look it up if you don't know what it is. Uh, number 14 was The Naked Gun with uh, Leslie Nielsen, just hilarious, dry humor, informs a lot of who I am. Number 17, Bull Durham, one of my favorite baseball movies, and the same year, this was number 23 in grossing, was Eight Men Out, wonderful, fun movie about the Chicago Black Sox scandal. Um, Number 19 was Rain Man, Best Use of the Cincinnati Airport in Movie History. And then number 23, Big Tear Jerker, Land Before Time. Spielberg was involved in this. Like all Spielberg movies, there's some some issues with kids moving away from parents and things like that. Okay, now, we're not done with the historical uh, look back. So the Billboard Top 100 for that year. The number one song was Faith by George Michael. Number two, Need You Tonight by NXS. Uh, number four, uh, "Never Gonna Give You Up" by Rick Astley, uh, which is featured in uh, "It's Only Sunny in Philadelphia" as a TV show, and also comes up in Ted Lasso. My favorite song on this Billboard Top 100 for the year at number 56 is "Desire" by U2, uh, which uh, which is a banger. Okay, so the back back to the learning. All right, so the the, the chemo they're using in this study is AC for four cycles, not dose-dense AC not AC followed by Paclitaxel. It's just AC. That's what we were doing back in 1988. So standard AC uh, every three weeks for four cycles. Um, and then if you were uh, ER positive, you got tamoxifen 10 BID. 10 BID for five years. Not 20 a day, but 10 BID. That's what the tamoxifen dosing was um, back uh, at that time. What uh, Another thing that is really interesting here, if you look at uh, the baseline demographics, um, we actually don't have... Uh, ERPR status for the premenopausal because of, of the, the, uh, apparently the way they did the biopsy, they weren't able to actually measure ERPR positivity. And they're reporting this um, as uh, 0 to 9, 10 to 99, or above 100, uh, which is how we did the time instead of kind of the dichotomous way we maybe think of it now. You know, most of these folks were, um, were over the age of 50. It was 50-50 between premenopausal and postmenopausal. Uh, 80% white, 10% black, uh, and the rest other, um, 75% were node negative, all right? so only 25% were node positive, so, um, so nowadays, many of these women in the area of, of oncotype DX or mammoprint may not actually be getting chemotherapy, and that needs to be put into perspective when, I think, when we look at this, how do these women actually need therapy? Because they're stage one and stage two cancer patients. Um, 60% were... Um, I think what we call it, a T2 lesion, which is two to five centimeters. Um, but this is what we had at the time. And they're randomized to either four cycles of AC, then surgery, or surgery followed by four cycles of AC. That's what it was. Very simple design, looking at looking at lots of things. And what we learned from this study is if you look at our um, – they have beautiful cap curves for five years um, – I don't think they're actually cat my curves or survival curves. It's not a, an estimate, but the disease free survival, the distant disease free survival and the overall survival. Um, the P values are 0.99 0.7 and 0.83. I don't know how the P values aren't exactly one because uh, by my uh, just naked eye, the cat the my curves are completely superimposable. Absolutely no difference in outcomes where they got chemo first or they got uh, chemo after surgery. Um, I will also point out from a toxicity standpoint, this is, in 1988, this is certainly pre-amend, I think this is even pre-Zofran, um, 10% of people in each arm had 6-10 to 10 episodes of vomiting in a 24-hour period, uh, which certainly doesn't happen in, in the Zofran era. Um, now, also, I've said this before, doxorubicin, moderately metagenic, cyclophosphine, moderately metagenic. This was moderately emetogenic. Here is how it was classified. Um, despite what the guidelines say, it's a moderately emetogenic regimen. Um, if you're fine to add men, that's great. It works better, but don't call it highly emetogenic to me. Um, or also go on a historical tangent, as I'm doing now. Apologies. Okay. So the the big takeaway here, right? There was no difference in outcomes, um, and and this was this was the primary aim of the study here. Um, but the, um, the big takeaway from this, and this is what you might not get from reading the paper, which is why it's wonderful to have this, this, um, this kind of synopsis by, by someone who is a seasoned clinician, is that it established the prognostic impact of having a pathologic complete response. Those women who had a pathologic complete response did better. Uh, those who had no response. Did not do as well. If you had a partial response, you did better than those that didn't have a response. So it was really beneficial at establishing the prognostic value that if you, if your tumor shrank or went all the way away with your preoperative chemo, you felt good that you were going to do better than the other. Now, as uh, as Dr. Hudes explains in this uh, editorial, said plainly, PCR at the trial level cannot yet serve as a surrogate for disease-free survival or overall survival meaning it should not be used as a regulatory endpoint for approval uh, in in his eyes. The other really big point of this was that, and I'm quoting here from the editorial, that uh, in the decades since 1998, prospective clinical trials and a refined understanding of the utility of lymph node dissection have been able to to avoid axillary procedures uh, to the benefits of preoperative systemic therapy. So it doesn't happen as much anymore, but there was a time... When it was really common for one to have an, an axillary lymph node dissection. You don't see that anymore because we know the benefit of giving chemo up front can make those nodes shrink and you. Um, you know even if you're a candidate for radiation or out a candidate we don't need to do those lymph node dissections which would leave women having lymphedema because they could not uh, they could not have that lymphatic drainage uh, I remember the first breast cancer patient i ever saw as a trainee uh, there was tons and tons of pain in this woman's uh, left or right arm i can't remember and tons of uh, pressure that had to be done and, and um, kind of heroic measures to try to keep her comfortable because of the lymphedema, that was also one of the the benefits of preoperative chemo. Now, this is stage one and stage two, and we often don't think of preoperative chemo for breast cancer, um, you know, certainly in stage one disease, but but this showed what some of the benefits are for this. But I have to add the caveat here is that uh, for these stage one and stage two patients, this is back in, in uh, 1988 going to 1998, five-year survival rate's 80% here. Um, now, that's, that's pretty good, right? That's pretty good. Now, you add taxate, that's going to be even better. You add longer duration of hormonal therapy, that's going to be uh, even better. But the cure here comes from the surgery, not from the chemotherapy most likely in most of these women's cases. It's the surgery that's most important. And if you've taken care of people with cancer long enough, you will see someone who dies from side effects of new adjuvant chemotherapy, and it breaks your heart because there's a, depending on the scenario, but if it's a stage one breast cancer and they died from sepsis after AC, the odds are pretty good they would have been cured with just surgery. Um, Chemotherapy increases those odds by 10, 20, 25%, depending on on certain clinical characteristics, but it's the surgery that's that's most important. So we still need to be judicious and and use good, I know it's redundant, good judgment to determine who are gonna be the best candidates for, for neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Even um, if you go back and read the study, it's not written the way studies are today uh, because it's written by the physicians. I should have mentioned this is Bernie Fisher, Bernard Fisher, um, who is a surgeon and did a, a lot of work um, leading projects that led to less uh, need for surgery, invasive surgery so uh, one of the, certainly one of the heroes in medical oncology, Bernard Fisher Alright, that is what I have today uh, I'll have the link uh, in the show notes to this as well as the editorial if you'd like to read it for your own since I'm being uh, brief today um, but thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at PharmDeetnip and you can follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoPharmPod and until I talk to you again, remember doses matter